If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11. Uh, I hope you are able uh, through the course of the week to spend some time just continuing to read through Exodus. We're going to follow along through it. So far in our time together, uh, we've been considering uh, the ongoing struggle of God's covenant people. And it sounds, we just heard that He is protecting them, but they are facing struggles and difficulties as, as we do. But uh, God had established a relationship with Abraham uh, over 400 years earlier than when we pick up reading in the Exodus. And as promised, uh, uh, this people chosen by God, not, not because of their goodness, not because of any merit on their part, but God set them apart and called them His, and uh, He established a covenant with them. Um, and as we mentioned, if we were planning all this out, we certainly would not have put the people in the situation uh, and where they are. Uh, but God had already told Abraham when He called him out, uh, He said, your people, uh, this nation... Uh, we'll spend 400 years in a foreign land. Uh, and by the time we get to the summary of events beginning in Exodus, uh, what do we hear? Some 400 years later, uh, their history had been forgotten. Uh, there was a, a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Uh, they were not worshiping God uh, in the same way that they would in the uh, coming months. Um, not only had Joseph been forgotten, but the people had grown uh, to a great number, at least a number that presented uh, a perceived threat on the part of the Egyptian government, uh, even to the point, as we read, uh, in an effort to diminish or at least control the population of these legal aliens, uh, they made two different efforts were made to kill the male children at birth. And we... Uh, understand at least from the first attempt that they failed. Uh, it, it didn't carry it out because they were dependent upon the midwives, the Hebrew midwives to do it, and they were not going to do it. They were going to trust God. The second attempt, uh, we know, then was turned over to the hand of the Egyptians, uh, and we can only assume that some were killed because uh, we know that uh, this baby that we read about that is later named Moses, we know that his mother felt the threat. And so we hear about, in the course of this narrative, about the salvation of one young man, one little boy, uh, who was adopted by the Egyptian princess and was raised uh, in, uh, kind of in the, in, in the palace, if you will. We also discovered that God had plans for this young man. Uh, and at 80 years old, uh, he calls him out to do a specific work. When Moses was 80 years old, God comes to him and begins revealing himself to Moses. And remember, uh, Moses first meets God at the burning bush. He met him there. Moses encountered the Lord. He recognized when he encountered the Lord, God told him that he was in a holy place. So that meant that this holy God and his holy presence had made this place holy. And all along the way, he is making himself known to Moses so that Moses would trust him. But not only that Moses would know who he was. Remember, we have read several times that 
Israel, God's people, would come to know who He is, that Pharaoh would come to know who He is, and that the rest of the world would come to know who God is. Isn't that the mission that we have left with us at the end of Matthew's Gospel, to go into all the world and proclaim Jesus Christ? That was a part of the work of, of God in His revealing Himself to Moses, and it remains a part of God's work today, is that His name would be known, that He would be known for who He is. And so He has done this work. We come to understand that through His name, as Adam already reminded us, uh, is His self-existence. We talked about the fact that He is eternal, He's holy, He's righteous, He's sovereign. Remember, we looked at that particularly last week. Rehearsed it again just a moment ago. Uh, he shows mercy to whom He will show mercy. Uh, and as we encountered last week as well, He hardens those whom He hardens. Not arbitrarily, but for the purpose of revealing His glory, which we have come to discover is the greatest reality. The glory of God. Now you may have noticed last week we didn't try to explain how in Scripture we read in some places that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and in other places we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. God's Word states both uh, and both are true. And so there's no reason that both can't be true. One way this can be true is that we know that Pharaoh was a non-believer. Uh, we'll hear again today that he didn't know who God was. Wasn't interested in knowing who God was. He was an unbeliever. He was a pagan. He was a polytheist. Uh, his heart was already hard toward God. So in, when he encounters God, his heart does not soften toward God. He sees God at least as a force and authority and a power that is not going to control him. So he pushes back. We see this clearly. We saw last week that God does show mercy. Uh, and even with Moses, shows mercy and grants him the ability to see his glory and to value it. Pharaoh encounters the glory of God and doesn't value it. I was thinking about that this week. Uh, that We need to be careful because we're not really that much different than Pharaoh. He's not worse than we are. His heart just gives us, and the picture of Him gives us the representation of what it means to be lost and to be apart from God. We saw last week in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, and you may want to turn there, but I just want to point you back to it for grounding. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. We looked at that last week in Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's the reason we rehearsed the lyrics of the song that we just sang a moment ago. It's not based upon our goodness or our righteousness or our exertion. It's based upon the mercy and the grace of God. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Hear that again? So that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And then last week we saw how God in his eternal and irresistible power set out to deliver Israel and make himself known. You know, we tracked back through that this morning uh, when we read the 105th Psalm. You hear? We read all of the list of all the plagues, not in their order, but the list of all the plagues. God showing His irresistible power. And we know it was irresistible because there was nothing that they could do with it. Pharaoh hardened his heart, didn't stop the power of God. We can harden our hearts toward God. It does not change the power and the authority of God. It does not. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we pay attention that there's a tension that's mounting. So if you will, just flip over to chapter 5 and look at verses 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron, says afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Now, he is, they're here, I've used the word to negotiate their release. Um, I'm using that term broadly. Uh, All they're doing is just speaking for God, and God is saying, let them go. They're saying, let them go. And then we hear, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. There's this tension that is mounting here. And the answer on Pharaoh's part is, no, I'm not going to let him go. No, I don't know who God is, uh, and I am not going to listen to him. And so what he does in response is not just tell God no, but if you'll read on in the text, what happens is, is he intensifies the pressure on these enslaved people. So while they had been given the resources that they needed to do the work, now they're responsible for gaining those resources and the level of production cannot come down. Some of you may can identify with that with work sometime, where uh, here are the things we are used to give you uh, to get your work done. Now you've got to figure out how you're going to get them but we expect no less work. Uh, That is what took place. And what happens in the course of that is that when the people first heard about the deliverance of God, we hear their response in chapter 4 and verse 31, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their afflictions, they bowed down their heads and they worshipped Him. But then when the pressure is intensified, then they rebel and push back, and they no longer see Moses as a deliverer. They see him as an intrusion in their life that is only making things worse. In other words, they are being persecuted now because of their identification with this God, the Lord. And now what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. And then there's that prepositional phrase, on my account. They are being persecuted on the account of God. Why? So that the glory and the power of God will be displayed. But God doesn't abandon them. Uh, and Moses and Aaron don't go away. They don't leave and say, oh, well, you know, I've got pressure on this end and pressure on this end. No, God doesn't back down. God will never back down. What he does is he just continues to unleash his irresistible power. And then we pick up in chapter 11 in our text. And before we read it, and we're going to read it through, uh, here is our aim this morning. I hope that we can see three things that I believe this text shouts in just a resounding message. God's plan for deliverance for His people is centered in a substitutionary sacrifice. That faith is a means for their salvation, but it's not the cause. And that gratitude is the appropriate response. And hopefully we'll see those. Exodus chapter 11. I encourage you to turn there and follow along as I read. And the Lord said to Moses, these nine plagues have been complete, okay? The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, you will, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of his people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. In other words, what you just told him, he is going to disregard. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his, of his land. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor will take uh, according to the number of persons, according to what each uh, can eat, and shall uh, make your uh, count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Uh, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day for you shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your host, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places and shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, he shall, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians 
but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron as they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt so that this same night is a night of watch keeping to the Lord by all of the people throughout their generations. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to see the significance of what you did and why you did it on that night. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice that after the devastation resulting from the first nine plagues, we hear that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh isn't ready to concede. He isn't ready to submit. Rather, he becomes even more entrenched in his sin. And as I said earlier, we need to be careful not to think of ourselves as being that much better than Pharaoh. We aren't. What we see in Pharaoh is the exact representation of a person without regard to God, even after seeing the great displays of power and even experiencing moments of His grace when he reprieves and restores, he still hardens. So we see a final act of God. And we should remember that divine long-suffering, that the long-suffering of God will reach an end. That's what this text tells us. 
that the long-suffering of God does reach an end. God is sovereign over life, and He's sovereign over time. The author of Hebrews tells us, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. When that time comes, that is the end of the long-suffering of God. The point is, divine long-suffering on the rebel does end. It ends by death, or it ends by the Lord's return, but make no mistake, it ends. And the Lord, in this display, in the Passover, is about to unveil its end. I want you to pay attention that all the firstborn of Egypt were under the sentence of death. Look back at chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And I want us to hear the whole story. We're going to go back and look at portions. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go. And when he lets you go, he will drive away, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask. And then he goes on, and then in verse 3, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great. But what we do understand in verse 4, and Moses says, Thus said the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Pay attention to that. It's important that we not miss this. The firstborn here, our representative, seems to be, as we look at God's redemptive plan, of all of mankind. This death sentence was significant. And, and at least for two reasons. Let's think back about it. What had happened to Israel's firstborn and the young men that were being born? Been sought to kill them. That's what the Egyptian had sought to do. In other words, we are going to lessen our threat by killing their babies. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do population control here. And God had told Pharaoh that Israel was his firstborn and to let his firstborn go. And he says, and if you don't let my firstborn go, then I am going to take the life of your firstborn. And that's what's about to happen. He said, if you refuse, then this is what I will do. I want you to hear this. There's nothing more dreadful than getting from God what is deserved. You hear that? There's nothing more dreadful than getting from God what is deserved. And Egypt, Pharaoh, is getting exactly what they deserved. I wonder, what do we deserve from God? Have you thought about that lately? What do we deserve from God? It's easy for us to say this, but I, let's try to grasp this. We deserve to be cast out of His presence and tormented for all eternity because of our disregard for Him. And that's what is about to occur in Egypt. God is getting ready to exact justice. But look in verse 7 of chapter 11. He says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that they may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now God had already made a distinction several times in the other nine plagues. But this was going to be a broad sweeping distinction 
And God mentions that he is going to draw a distinction between his people and Egypt. I studying through this passage, it was interesting that have you ever seen when you see uh, when you see Egyptian symbols? Have you ever noticed that in the course of Egyptian symbols, there is always the head of a dog? You remember seeing that in your history books when you're looking at the when you're looking at the pyramids and it's the head of a dog. Well, God says that not even a dog will growl at my people. I think he meant this literally. I think his hand of protection was going to be upon his people that there was not even going to be a dog that would growl against his people. But notice over in chapter 11 as well where we hear Yeah, look in verse, in chapter, in chapter 12, in verse 12, he said, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. What's happening here? Well, God's saying, uh, literally, that a dog's not going to growl against Israel. But I am going to strike at your gods. I'm going to strike at your pantheon. And here's what he's saying. You have no one to appeal to for escape. You have no one to appeal to for escape. I am going to come down on you and I am going to execute judgment and you have nowhere to turn. There is no salvation for you apart from me. You don't have anyone to appeal to. Your God cannot defend you and will not stand in opposition to my people. Do you see and understand that in Christ that is what God says? If we reject Christ, there's no one to appeal to. That's the reason when we get to Romans chapter 8 and we hear this display as if we're in the throne room of God and said, and, and who is going to bring a charge against you? There's not a God. There's no one that can bring a charge against you if you are in Christ. But those who are not in Christ have no one to appeal to. Notice the devastating destruction that takes place. Look in chapter 12. Verse 29, God had made this promise and this is what comes. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There was not a house where there was not a corpse laying. That's what he said. Can you imagine that? And, and let's, let's Let's say if something like that were to happen here in the Wilmington area, in the broader Wilmington area, can you imagine the devastation if at midnight tonight, one person, at least one person in every household died at the exact same time? And that's what took place in Egypt and Pharaoh. They woke up to a wailing and he's crying out then, we've got to get them out of here. 
We've got to get them out of here. But here's what I want you to see. There was not one, there was not one firstborn spared in all of the Egyptians' household. Not one. But notice Israel's deliverance. Israel's deliverance from Egypt was preceded by their deliverance from death. You see that? That's what the Passover is speaking about. They were delivered from death, and in that, they were delivered and given their freedom. In other words, they were free then to go. The Passover taught the vital truth about grace. Grace, notwithstanding its sovereignty, wouldn't and could not be experienced apart from there being a death. That's the point of the Passover. Deliverance was by means of the blood of the sacrifice that was made. What does the sacrifice point to? It was, points to the fact that there was a need for a substitute. In the Passover, the lamb or the goat that had been prescribed to die was dying in the place of the firstborn of the household. One for one, so to speak. One for one. It's interesting that being the firstborn was normally a position of prominence. Not this time. This time there was a mark on the firstborn. In fact, it wasn't a place of prominence, but it was a place of impending judgment and death. Every firstborn, the young and the old, that was true for Egypt and it was true for Israel, was subject to die. I was thinking about that this past week. What was being said in that? Well, I'm 62. I've sinned a lot in 62 years. But what about that one, that firstborn that was six days old? What God was saying in the course of this is that this was not about, this was not about the sins that they had committed. It was about the sinfulness that they were and were represented, the young and the old alike. There was no, there was no place in here uh, for discrimination from the 80-year-old to the 8-day-old. It wasn't about perceived innocence or guilt. It was about pointing to the fact that salvation wasn't warranted. It was not warranted. It was an act of God's grace for His own glory. And we know the sacrifice was a substitute. How? Well, the blood of the sacrifice was to be applied to each house. I've thought about it some this week, uh, but I don't think we can underestimate the grace of the substitution. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Think about the firstborn of Israel. Don't you think that they came to understand the grace of all of this? The firstborn in all of Israel's households, from the youngest to the oldest firstborn, they were subject to die, and it was only by the grace of God in this substitute 
sacrifice, dying, and that blood being applied that they would be spared. The lamb was slain and the blood was applied and they were spared. Just as Christ was the lamb that was slain in the place of those who would be saved. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. A great picture there, but I want you to listen to this. Authority was given over every tribe and people in language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If your name is written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain, there's life. And if the name is not there, there's no life. It's the reason why Paul was able to write, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's why. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. The Lamb that was slain. But look in chapter 12 and let's look at verses 3 through 6. Because we see something else that's important here. This was a perfect and acceptable sacrifice. It says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what um, each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a whole year old. And you will take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So the lamb's taken on the 10th day of the month, and it's held until the 14th day of the month. One of the commentators that I was reading about it asked the question, why? I never thought about it. I'd always thought about it in terms of, well, uh, you take a, an, an animal out of your livestock, you feed it well, you prepare it, you get them cleaned out, as we used to say, and, and then you slaughter them. I don't think that that's what's going on here. They select this lamb that is supposed to be perfect and without blemish, and how are they to know if it's perfect and without blemish? They set it aside for 14 days to observe it, is why. It was watched closely for four days to ensure that the sacrifice was acceptable. That was pretty important to the firstborn on that first Passover night. Because had that lamb not been acceptable, that would have meant the life of that firstborn. Remember Christ's life. Between the time He was born until the time He was crucified is a picture of what life has to be for the Lamb of God to be shown sufficient and perfect. How do we hear about that? 
Well, we hear about it in the fact that he remained undefiled, without sin, was tempted in every way like we are, yet he was without sin. He resisted temptation to the point of death. What does that mean theologically? Well, it meant that his qualifications were confirmed. It meant that he had shown himself to the world what was already known to God because he was God, and that is the fact that he was the perfect Lamb of God. You see how important it is? Why it is Christ and no other way? Why there's no other God, no other sacrifice? He actively obeyed the Father. And in His active obedience, He shone to the world and to us, even in the details of Scripture, He shown to us that He was God and that He was righteous and that He was without blemish. And therefore, when He is brought before God and He bears the wrath of God for our sin, and God raised him from the dead, he put the stamp of approval on him and said, yes, that sacrifice is acceptable. But notice also here about this substitute. It has a die. Look in verse 6 of chapter 12 again. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall do what? Kill their lambs at twilight. Why do you suppose that's so? Well, death is the execution of justice. How do we know that? Well, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 tells us what? For the wages of sin is death. Death is the execution of justice. Death was then, please listen, death was then and remains today the penalty for sin. The whole Passover points to this and points to the fact that Jesus and His atoning work, having been stricken by God for the sins of others, is the way life is provided. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53, if you will. Verse 4. Surely He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken. We, we sang that earlier. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. But oppression and judgment, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Whose guilt? Our guilt. Ours. The guilt of the sinner. And then finally, if you will, notice here in chapter 12, in verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. Send what people out? To send Israel, the spared ones, out. It was successful. The slain lamb, the obedience to place the blood on the lentils and the doorpost, the going in and staying in, that sacrifice, that substitute was sufficient. It was successful. It delivered life and delivered, delivered them into freedom. I said I wanted us to look at the necessity for a substitutionary sacrifice, but there's something else that I want us to see. I think this passage of Scripture speaks to at least that I'm looking at it, speaks to faith in at least some way. And though we don't hear it, we don't see it, I can't help but believe it because what was final for Israel? Were they just universally saved? Oh no. God had given them a prescription. He had told them what they must do and He told them that the blood must be applied. Notice their salvation and their deliverance did not come apart from the sacrifice, but it didn't come apart from their faith. Now we'll look more at faith as we get on into Exodus, but the point is, is that God is revealing Himself and He's calling Israel to trust Him. In this instance, everyone who killed the prescribed substitute sacrifice and applied the blood to their doorpost and lentils was delivered. They trusted God. I thought about it. Think about the gallons of blood that were shed. Spilled. But if it hadn't been applied, if they had not walked in obedience, if they had only taken and killed the lamb and had eaten it for food and had not applied the blood with the understanding that that applied blood was the peace that God intended for them to understand that the shedding of blood was necessary for their deliverance. If they had not applied the blood, what would have happened? They would have wound up just like the Egyptians. The firstborn would have died. Now they heard God's Word and they believed. Yesterday I was able to participate in a, uh, in a funeral for a friend of mine. And uh, in the course of being there, it was, um, I, I wasn't comfortable in the setting. Um, I was at a church here in Wilmington. Um, theology is primarily, in, in fact, not primarily, is totally universal. Meaning that 
uh, just some good thoughts needed to be had. Christ had died. Everybody was saved. Everything's good because that's just the way God's grace works. Um, a friend of mine had been to Ghana with us um, and with some of us, maybe here today, maybe not, but had been to Ghana with us. And I was trying to figure out, okay, how, how do we redeem this? Because we have people here who are lost and, of course, this text is fresh on my mind, thinking of the Egyptians who had no blood applied, did not listen to God, were apart and separated from God, and then these chosen people who were given this, and they followed what God said. They trusted Him at this point. How do you, how do you redeem this when everybody is going to go to heaven? And... What I said was this. I said, if everybody's saved, and if God's grace is applied and spread upon everybody towards salvation, without faith in Him, without trusting and believing in Him, without following Him, then there would be no need, and I said this, there would be no need to walk five feet or to travel five miles to share the gospel with anyone. But I said my friend went 5,000 miles, which meant that there was a need to hear the message of the grace of God in Christ, and there was a need for people to hear it and to respond and to believe. And we know that because... In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, and I read almost the entire chapter, but in Romans 10, 17, some of you will remember that because you have it memorized. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. What's the point? The point is, is that faith is objective. It's objective. They heard God's Word in what to do in applying the blood to the doorpost and the lintel. They heard that. What did they do? They trusted Him in that and they did it. Faith rests in the certainty of God's Word. And this Passover puts an exclamation point on the grace of God and on substitutionary atonement. But I believe it also puts an exclamation point on faith. Think about it a moment. There were probably Israelites, the firstborn, mind you. Can you imagine? How many firstborns do we have in here? Okay. Good number of firstborns. Yeah, firstborns. First and only born for some. Yeah, first and only born. But firstborns. Can you imagine even now what you would, what you would feel like? If you can, just think about it a moment. What you would feel like if this decree had been placed over you and your family and you awaited that night and did this, can you imagine what you would feel like as it became dusk and you went inside wondering, am I going to be alive tomorrow morning? Am I going to be alive tomorrow morning? I've done everything that God has Asking this, am I going to be alive tomorrow morning?
I've thought about it. There were probably some who went in maybe unsure totally of what to expect. But it didn't change what God had said the outcome was going to be. I read this this week and you will maybe can appreciate this. Strong faith can increase the experience of peace. But it doesn't increase the security. Weak faith may diminish the enjoyment of peace, but it doesn't diminish the security. Why? Because our faith is on the objective Word of God and what He has said. And what does that mean for us? It means that God has said, trust me, believe in me, my Son, and His atoning work for you, and have life. Don't believe in me. Don't trust in me. Don't follow me. And you will face the judgment of God. That's where we come back to the truth of the last part of that catechism, Adam. And that was what? That means God is not going to pass over the guilty apart from the blood of Christ having been applied, and that comes in our trusting Him. I said there was one other thing that I wanted us to come to understand out of this text, and that is gratitude. Um, Mona, Henry, are you you're going to deal with the elements today? Do you want to come and get those ready? And then I'll make the last comment. While he's doing that, I want you to think on this for just a moment. What is a proper response to the grace of God and the substitutionary atonement of Christ? Well, it's thanksgiving and remembrance, isn't it? Thanksgiving and remembrance. It's interesting that this Passover, as far as we know in the course of this, the Passover was to be kept. I don't know that we see anywhere else in Scripture that the life of the firstborn was at stake. We don't see that in Scripture, I don't think. After this first Passover night, it was not an issue that if you don't keep this Passover, that the firstborn is going to die. It was remembered this Passover by observing it Year after year after year after year. Because this Passover is the mark of the beginning of life for you as a nation. And the firstborn represented that because they were spared and given life. By the grace of God, through the sacrifice and the blood that was spilled on their behalf and was put upon their house, we read it just a moment ago, but I want you to hear this one more time. 
it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statute of the Passover. For when? From now on. Until when? It's pointing to Christ. Until the final sacrifice. The one that is sufficient. The one that this is pointing to until that sacrifice is made. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. And he said, do this every year in remembrance of what has taken place here this night. Be thankful for it. In similar terms, this is what we this is what we hear at the table. We've pointed to Christ, His sacrifice, the unleavened bread, broken body, shed blood, and then the Apostle Paul, right into the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night before He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. If you're here today and you've trusted Christ and you've been baptized, and if you are in a member in good standing with your church, and I'm looking at our folks here today and we know each other, we want to invite you to come as an expression of thanksgiving and as in accordance with God's Word, remembering uh, the shed blood and the broken body of Christ. And in that, uh, we have life. I want to pray, and then I'll invite you to come. And if you will, come as we normally do, and then return to your seats, and we'll partake of the elements together. Father, we are grateful today that you have pointed us back to your Word and the significance of that night where you showed us that by your grace and the showing of your mercy that you directed your people to understand that death was necessary for life. And God, we know tonight that those lambs that were slain that night and all the other lambs that were slain all the times that the Passover was kept and we know, Father, that the Passover was not kept for sometimes years. But we are reminded, Father, and they were reminded that this was to be remembered because of what You had done in the course of saving them. As we are reminded today that You were looking and pointing them to Christ as You have us. And He has come and He has shed His blood, and His body has been broken for us. We thank You today. 
in Christ's name. Amen. Will you come?